So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, if you're not already there. I'm going to read verses 32 through 43, which is the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Follow along in your Bibles in the armrest. They are the same version that I'll be reading out of. And if you have a translation that's not ESV, uh, you'll just notice some wording differences, but it is the same original text. This is the word of the Lord. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Both of those names mean gazelle in two different languages. Uh, She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him. Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity and preservation given to us to lead us in the way of life, given to us to lead us to Christ, to show him to us and to allow us to come to you, Lord, by teaching us the truth about ourselves and about you. We pray as we come to this text, Lord, that you would make us uh, give, uh, in, enliven in us the mind of Christ, Lord, which we know we have been given And yet, Lord, so often I feel we cloud and distract ourselves and uh, we dim that um, that light. And so I pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to understand and think as Christ would think and and to know your thoughts and intentions for man. And this is only possible because the Spirit has been given to us, the very Spirit of God, the Helper, the one who walks and dwells within us. And so we ask all this, that Christ would be exalted and put on display in front of us, Lord, that we might follow him more closely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the book of Acts, Acts is written by Luke, who's a doctor. Um, We've mentioned this before. Luke took a very careful account. If you look at the beginning of his two books, in the first one he says, O Theophilus, I wrote to you so that you would know what Christ was doing. And then in the second book he wrote, Hey, Theophilus, I'm writing to you another book. I wrote to you one book about what Jesus began to do, and now I'm writing to you another book so that you can know what he's continuing to do in his church. So that's what the book of Acts is. It's volume two of Luke's set, Luke the doctor. And one of the things that we notice about Acts, they say it's about a 40-year history uh, jammed into 28 chapters. You'll, you'll notice that the book, the Gospels, approximately the same number of chapters, but covering a much smaller amount of history. You're looking at roughly three years, not including the, the 30 that spanned between Jesus' birth and his ministry, but essentially you have three years of narrated history taking place in t- 21 chapters or 28 chapters. But here we have 28 chapters in 40 years. 
40 years of church planting and the early church activity. And so Luke writes in vignettes sometimes. Little vignettes are like little scenes or large scenes uh, or call them windows. You know, on your computer when, if you're like me, you have 77 windows open because you've got this YouTube video you got to get to. You've got that article you need to read. You have that email you need to respond to. And you're just, you're like, I'll get to it all but you're holding all of these windows open and you're jumping back and forth. And that's sort of how I do my work. And I could be more productive probably if I focused on one thing at a time. But guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke is able to work between these windows and tell a cohesive story. And in fact, he would tell things about the church and to the church that are pertinent and formative. None of these stories are like, oh yeah, I forgot Peter did that thing. I'll write that. These are all formative and guided by the Holy Spirit for the church to understand what Christ is doing. And it's no accident. And so now we are shifting between Saul. We did, remember we did Saul two weeks ago. Yogi came and took the word last week and what a blessing that was for our church. But before that, we were looking at Paul's, Saul's conversion. Saul's conversion, that dramatic conversion where he once was a murderer, hating the church, and being zealous for the traditions of Judaism, becoming a missionary, and and in fact, teaching about Jesus in the synagogues where he was going originally to arrest them. So we're shifting from Saul and what he's now doing, and it's going to come back to him, but it's back on to Peter. Now, Peter was heavily emphasized in the first four chapters of Acts. He did a lot of preaching. He did healing. Uh, He was a witness to authorities. He was very active in those first four and five chapters. And then we shifted uh, on to other parts and we saw Saul enter. There was many chapters, remember, Stephen preaching. So it jumps back to Peter. Now, Peter is going to be in focus here for about four chapters until the end of chapter 12. And then Peter is almost completely going to disappear from the narrative in Acts. The chief apostle, the, probably the most influential apostle in terms of his time with Christ, his closeness with Christ and his understanding of ministry, uh, he disappears completely. And uh, that's a fascinating reality, but the, the book of Acts really focuses heavily on the ministry of Saul or Paul thereafter. And so we really want to dig in here and find out what Peter is up to in the church in these four chapters. His ministry here teaches us basically one very important thing about the early church, that it was God's fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that all the nations would be welcomed as his people. When we take this for granted now, because we see in uh, India and China and North Korea and even Iran and South um, America, the church is exploding in all of these different languages, in all of these different people groups totally foreign to Western civilization. And the church is exploding and we just think, oh, that's so wonderful. But in in the mind of God's people in the first century, this was radically difficult to understand and embrace. Because in the Old Testament, God had chosen to reveal himself to a people who were a nation. He made them into a nation state. We don't have that same expression today. We have a, a chosen race a royal priesthood and the nation of God comprised of global, globally existent people. That, that is the nation of God now. It's not, a, it's not a geocentric or ethnocentric people, but it's global. But that was hard if you were a Jew at the time to understand. In Psalm 86 verse 9, it's a verse that tells us that all the nations will come to the Lord and worship him. And the Old Testament is full of prophecy that all the nations will come and worship. It's also a fulfillment of the parable of the vineyard where Jesus said, he told that story about an owner who rented out the vineyard and he sent a servant and the, owner, the, the tenants killed that servant or abused him. They threw him out. He sent another servant. They threw him out. Then he said, perhaps if I send my son, they will respect him. And they said, they looked at the son and they said, this is the one to whom belongs the inheritance. If we kill him, it can all be ours. That was a story about the Jewish people. If we kill Jesus, then we get to keep this kingdom for ourselves. Because when Jesus came, he claimed authority over 
religious truth. All religion, he claimed to be God. And they said, if we kill him, then we get to be the keepers of the kingdom. And so they killed Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus says in the parable, what do you think God will do with those wicked tenants? And they, out of their own mouths, say they will, they recognize that owner, if he is worth his salt, will destroy those tenants and he will give it to somebody else who will pay him his due. So that's a fulfillment of the, the, the ethnocentric presence of God with Israel being taken away. Not that all Israel is cast off. Paul makes it very clear. Lots of Jews got saved and accepted Christ. That's not what God did, but he took it away from them as, an, as a nation state. And he said, it will be given to all peoples all peoples who will inherit not only the land that God promised in the Old Testament, but will inherit the whole earth. So there's a little bit of biblical theology for you, but this is what Peter's ministry really starts to emphasize. He has a vision where all of these unclean animals come down on a sheet. It's kind of a bizarre scene, like pigs and stuff on a bed sheet, and they're coming down. And God says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And then he sends him off to a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, And Peter recognizes, okay, I'm starting to get it here. God's going to give his Holy Spirit to everyone who comes to Christ. So Peter's ministry is really about demonstrating the unity and the acceptance between the Jewish church and the Gentile church, which at the beginning was very separated. The very first church was entirely Jewish. It was all Jewish. I mean, that was the way it was. And so Peter's ministry really focuses on demonstrating that God has accepted all people based on Jesus and his blood and the gift of the Holy Spirit, not based on where they were born, who their moms and dads were, none of that. So Peter's ministry emphasizes that. Now that's great hope to us because none of us deserve a relationship with God. None of us deserve it. None of us came out of the womb thinking, how can I please God? And yet on the basis of this doctrine, His grace is extended to us through the witness of the church and we have been made partakers. And so this vignette jumps back to Peter real quick. And it begins with these two miraculous healings. He first uh, brings a paralytic, uh, a man who is paralyzed out of bed, tells him to rise. And then the second one, he actually raises a person from the dead. I don't know if sometimes we forget that Jesus was not the only resurrection in the scriptures, even in the New Testament. Lazarus was raised from the dead before him. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead before him. Uh, Tabitha was raised from the dead after him. There was a kind of a heck of a lot of resurrections. I mean, per capita, okay, not that many, but certainly uh, it's, it's happening in the scriptures. And in our experience as Christians, And I'm going to get to the text. I know this is a long introduction. In our experience as Christians, we are immediately, I I mean, maybe not you, but I get the sense that we are immediately pressed to ask this question. What are we supposed to do with these texts where people get healed and raised from the dead? Because I don't see that happening a whole lot. I've been to few more funerals in the last five years than I did the five years before. And the people who had died stayed dead. I prayed for people as a Christian who I knew were about to die. And then they went ahead and died. And so as, what do we do with these? What do we do with passages where people are healed and raised from the dead in the name of Christ, in the church? Let's not also forget that people also died in the church as a result of the word of the Lord, Ananias and Sapphira. So just keep that in mind. Um, That's obviously not going to be the emphasis. This is a passage about healing. But I think when we come to a text and we start to ask through the lens of our experience, what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to understand this text? We're going to come up with totally warped interpretations and and we're going to get it wrong because it's going to force us into assumptions that lack assumptions that lack the right interpretive key. What's the interpretive key? It's Jesus Christ. Christ is our hermeneutic. Christ is our understanding of every line of scripture in the whole Bible. Genesis 1:1, 1, 1, 
Acts 2.32, Galatians 5.16. Our interpretive key is always Jesus Christ. He is the central meaning of the text. And therefore, understanding it through him is going to give us clarity regarding how this story differs from our experience. Not might differ, but does differ from our experience in large measure. I have heard of wonderful miracles taking place across the earth, the dead being raised and people being healed, and I uh, give God glory for those things. But in our normative, our normal experience, why is this not just a prerogative of the church? Why is the church not just having this happen? Literally, there are people today who say, if the church is, has any faith in Christ that's worth its salt, then we should be emptying out hospitals. You nurses are like, well, that, I, I, I need my job still, so I don't know if I really want that. But, but should Christians be nurses and doctors not necessarily assuming that they have the power to just heal somebody. I think if we understand this through Christ, it's going to give us clarity on that question and it's going to comfort you who work in hospitals and who are not able to just fix people by the word of your mouth. Um, because there's something else going on. So I have, my outline is, is a little different this week. Uh, I'm going to just very briefly just go over the text quickly. Then I'm going to go over the theology that we pull from this to understand it. And then I'm going to go through doxology, which means it, that's, that's praise. That's response. That's how do we live? How should we live? I mean, our whole lives are worship of the Lord. So how, what, how does it affect our doxology or our living or our worship of the living God? The narrative is straightforward. I mean, I almost don't have to summarize. You heard it. As Peter's traveling, as the apostles were doing, he enters a city called Lydda, in which there's a disabled man who, through the name of Jesus Christ, not even in the name of Christ, but basically tells him what Jesus is doing. Did you notice that? He just tells him. He doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, I heal you. He just says, Jesus heals you. I mean, talk about confidence that he knows what Jesus is about to do or has already done. And so he says, Jesus heals you. Get up and make your bed. Seeing this, all of the residents, it says, all of the residents turned to the Lord. Then nearby in Joppa, which is a beautiful um, port that Jerusalem used. In fact, when Solomon made the temple, he brought in all of his Lebanese cedars through the port at Joppa. It was a seaside city. It's still there today. It's a gorgeous city. And... Um, Actually, both of these cities were. Lydda was exchanged um, back and forth between the Muslims and the Muslim conquest in the 600s. Um, Rome took it over. Um, Israel sacked the city at one point. I mean, this is a city that was traded many times because it was higher elevation and it was good for military um, strategy. So that's, it's now called Lod. So both of these cities exist today. Peter actually visited these and they existed as far back as, really far back. Way before Christ. I can't remember the date, so I'm not going <clears> to <throat> embarrass myself. But these are long-standing cities. And Joppa, in fact, was one of the earliest Christian congregations, this other one. So they lose a beloved sister named Tabitha. And they summon Peter to visit them where they obviously expected that she would be raised. How do we know that? Because it says that they washed her and they laid her in the upper room. Normally, when somebody dies, you prepare them for burial. And you, you, the, um, the tradition or the custom was to just bury somebody, especially um, in, with any Jewish influence, you knew that a dead person was unclean. I mean, it's a corpse now. It's not something to be cuddled with. Um, and so they wash her and they lay her in the upper room and then they summon Peter. Okay, so they clearly had expectations that Peter was going to do something. And so... Peter comes by, two guys go and find him, and Peter comes and he raises her and he presents her to the body of Christ. And the Christians spread this story around Joppa. Now remember, this was not unbelievers. I think the paralytic guy was an unbeliever. And many turned to, it says all turned to the Lord. And then in this other story in Joppa, this was before believers. And so the, the Christians there spread this story, how their sister was raised from the dead. 
And again, it says, even though it was Christians who witnessed it, it said many believed in the Lord, which means the story went around the whole city and people couldn't believe it. Really? In Christ? And people turned to Christ at that time. So as the gospel is advancing, we're seeing old religious and social barriers being broken down and coming to nothing. Peter stays with Simon a tanner at the end. Do you know what a tanner is? It's somebody who works with dead animal skins to make leather. Leather tanning. I, I came from a town called Acton, and it was called Leather Town, and we had a tannery in the town. So this tanning is, a, is a, an ancient trade, but again, Jews would have looked down on and found unclean the profession of tanning because it was dealing with dead animal skin and dead animal carcass unclean in Old Testament Jewish tradition. And here in the gospel, under the fulfillment of the law, Peter's able to stay with him. And so we're seeing these social and um, religious barriers coming down. Also, the reality that this is what's amazing, especially for Peter. This was nearby to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is not a far distance from this town. But nonetheless, the old religious system was for people to come to Jerusalem offer their sacrifice and offer worship through the high priest who would intercede for them. And now we have self-sufficient, independent, little Christian congregations that are totally, I don't want to say self-existent because the Lord is there and the apostles have planted it, but basically they don't have to go anywhere. They're just there worshiping. Why? Because the spirit is with them. Their high priest is in heaven interceding for them. And so this is why geographically the church is not just temporarily there and they need to travel to where God is. God has made his home with his people. And so that's that's why church planting is such a significant work because we're not just telling people, you know, here's about Jesus, but you got to come to our church. You can plant a church and God will be there with his people. This is a major religious almost revolution. And uh, we see that the apostles who were given that command to make disciples, they were traveling around. And in Acts chapter two, we are told that signs and wonders were being performed by them, by the apostles, which meant that their authority to make disciples, their authority to teach and to witness to Christ was validated, was proved by the signs that they did, which in fact, is the exact same as Jesus. That's exactly how Jesus' ministry worked. He proved the validity and the authority with which he spoke. They recognized the authoritative manner in which he spoke, but he proved his divine origin. He proved his sonship with the Lord by his powerful workings. He even said, if you refuse to believe me, at least believe the signs. Like, I am Lord. I mean, when he calmed the sea... I mean, there was a storm on the sea probably the next week. It's not like Jesus forever stopped storms on that sea. But what did it show the disciples? Oh, this is the Son of God. This is not just a magic trick. This is the Son of God. This is God here. So he proved his divinity and his sonship and his, his eternality by his powerful works. So that's the story. Brief synopsis. So what does it teach us? Well, I think we can draw a lot of light by looking at two different times when Jesus performed very similar miracles. I don't want to say near identical, but very similar miracles, both of which Peter was present for. Peter was there. Peter watched Jesus do miracles almost identical to this. We're really talking about sort of a master and his apprentice. And in this narrative, we're seeing the apprentice kind of go out on his own under the authority of Christ. But nonetheless, Jesus isn't walking with him, but Peter has seen this. Peter knows how it works. And the first one is one of the most famous stories about Jesus. He's teaching in a house and it's so crowded that people can't get in. And there's a paralyzed man and he has four really solid friends who are really willing to take risks. And they, they huff the paralyzed guy up onto the roof. They smash a hole in the roof. And then they drop the paralyzed guy down. Here he is. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. You are forgiven of your sins. He just forgives his sins. The paralyzed guy drops down and Jesus forgives him of his sins. 
doesn't forgive him for smashing the roof. Like, that's not really, that can get fixed. He doesn't just, oh, you know, that's going to that's gonna be a bummer, but I forgive you for that. No, he forgives him for his lifetime of sins. And this draws the ire of the Jews who are watching. Because the Jews have good theology. They know this guy can't forgive this man. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus knows that they're thinking this. He knows that they're making a logical connection here that is totally valid. He's a man who's teaching. How, how can he forgive the sins of this paralyzed man? And in fact, in their doctrine, they would believe that God had actually cursed the man because of his health. So in fact, they would look at the man and say, actually, this guy's probably not forgiven if you look at his problems. Jesus said, no, your sins are forgiven. But he recognizes that they're grumbling about it and Jesus invokes this amazing logic. He says, okay. He's like, I'll play ball. Which is, it e- which is easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So now he's raised the stakes on these Jews who are watching him and the paralyzed guys there. Everybody's watching. There's a hole in the roof. Like something big is going on here and he raises the stakes. Okay. So you recognize that I can, I can just go around and say anybody's sins are forgiven because you can't see that. There's no proof. How do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know if somebody says to you, your sins are forgiven, that they're actually gone? But then Jesus says to him, so that you will know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I will also make him walk. Now, he did that in a very specific order because if he had just told the guy, hey, look at, wow, this guy comes in. Hey, you guys want to see a trick? Get up and walk. Nobody would have been paying attention to the theological and the spiritual reality, which is 10 times more critical, that his sins could be forgiven. But he draws everybody's attention and by making this controversial claim, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, that's impossible. You can't forgive his sins. And even if you could, how can you prove it? And Jesus says, I'll prove it. And so he proves that his forgiveness is genuine. He commands the man to get up and walk. What's the connection there? And that is that the only person who can pardon sin must be God himself. Why does God have the authority to pardon sin? Well, because he created us. There's a connection between creator and judge. If you made something, you have the right over its existence. So God's identity as our creator and as our judge are tightly connected. It's not like somebody else made us and God came along and said, guess I want to be the boss. I'm going to judge. No, God is the creator and therefore he is the judge. And if he's the judge, he has authority to forgive and pardon, doesn't he? Because even after the lawyers argue and the jury decides it is the judge who sentences, it is the judge in who uh, lies the final authority. And so because Jesus demonstrates that he has authority as creator over physical nature. He demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm to forgive and to pardon and to cleanse. So Jesus demonstrates his equality with God in this story. And therefore, as the judge, as having authority over mankind, basically, if he can heal, he can forgive. That's what Jesus is saying. And so what is Jesus trying to tell us through that? That if you come to Christ for a pardon, for a pardon for sin, you can be assured that your pardon is genuine. There's a story about a guy, I don't know when the Eiffel Tower was made, but there was a con artist, I think in the early 20th century, who um, probably wore a nice suit. And he actually convinced somebody that he represented the city of Paris and that Paris didn't want the tower anymore and he sold it to a scrap metal recycler uh, and he did that twice. He sold the Eiffel Tower twice for scrap metal. Guess what? The Eiffel Tower is still there because he never had authority to do that. He just convinced somebody that he did. Well, is Jesus like that? Hey, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will cleanse your sin. How do we know we can trust? How do we know that's for real? Wynn was just asking us the other day, how do I know that my sins are actually forgiven? How do I know that I'll actually be in heaven? 
It's the story of Christ. It's because Jesus lived, proved his divinity, suffered for our sin, was raised from the dead as a sign of God's approval and acceptance, and then received back into heaven to be our high priest. We have total assurance that our forgiveness in Christ is absolutely genuine. But what we have to realize when we deal with healing in the scriptures is that the more significant work is the forgiveness of sin. That's why, coming back to our text, that's why one man was physically healed, but all the residents turned. Every single resident didn't have to pass under the shadow of Jesus' cloak, okay, or touch Peter's back or his staff. Every single person did not have to have a miraculous encounter in order to recognize Jesus' ability to forgive them. That's the whole point. There was one sign of one paralyzed man, and it led to the fruit of the repentance of most of the city. And that's why when we read the witness of Scripture, the witness of the miraculous and the authority of Christ, we don't come to it asking how or why can we not or do these things. That's not the question that the Scripture poses to us. How can I get this power? In fact, we saw that with um, Simeon, the, the magician. If we come to the Scriptures asking how can we receive power, we have not understood the gospel. How can I do that? How can I perform that? That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the reconciliation between man and God and the recreation of all things. So that's what sort of a little bit of a parallel of the first story. Now, what about the second story? We have a congregation who is deep up to their necks in the pain of the loss of a beloved sister. Uh, we're, we're told that she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was a Christian, full of the Spirit and living a totally selfless life. She was actually making tunics and garments for widows. She was hand-stitching these garments to, to pass out so that the less fortunate could have comfortable clothing and, and warm clothing and all those sorts of things. And I mean, you could just imagine in that scenario, somebody who has lived their life their lives touching so many people with the love of Christ. When they die, what is the loss like for that family, for that Christian family, for that community? You're not just losing a friend or a sister, but you're losing somebody who is literally transforming that community. I mean, that's painful. We don't learn how she died or how old she was. But I mean, that's just the Christian community living with the realities of sin of of the cursed world that we live in they're not immune from the terrible things that go on in the world from the fact that sometimes the best and brightest lights come to death in what we would estimate as before their time or you know we struggle with why now and how this and why did this person get sick and i mean it's painful good good people who get cancer and die 20 years before their spouse or 20 years before what their natural lifespan would be. And it's painful. It's a reality for the Christian community as much as any other part of the world. And Christians struggle with this as much as the world does. And often the world turns to us and that's one of the tough questions they ask. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's a tough question to answer, isn't it? But one of, the, one of the great hopes is that God is as much with his people through tragedy and pain as he is through triumph. I mean, if you look at the whole, the totality of scriptures, God does not keep his people back from pain, but instead he actually allows them to walk through it to demonstrate his faithfulness, to demonstrate that he will not abandon them. And in fact, all through scriptures and in our lives, it's so true The furthest we are from God is when our lives are often the easiest and most comfortable. Isn't that a tragic default position? Don't you wish you're like, well, God, I want to be faithful and be comfortable. It just seems like we do not achieve that. And so this lady dies and the widows were wailing and they were showing their tunics. I mean, they're clinging to the memory of Tabitha. You might be familiar with that too. When a loved one passes and you have something that belonged to them or was given to you from them, suddenly it becomes so much more precious. And that which you would have overlooked a year ago just becomes just 
indispensable and you put it in that special drawer or whatever it is and they're clinging and they're just, they're wailing and they're in pain. There's a similar story in Mark chapter 5 with the daughter of Jairus, a, a young girl. I have a young daughter and I can just imagine, I mean, if she was sick or she, she, but she passes away, she dies. And this is just the, this is the worst kind of thing to see as, as believers, like a, a child who didn't get a chance to live her full life and to express faith in Christ or whatever it is. And Jairus' daughter has died. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus goes and there's a room full of people. And he says, don't weep because she's only sleeping. And they start mocking him. What do you mean sleeping? We, we recognize a dead person when we see it. But that's the amazing thing is that in Jesus' world, in Jesus' version of reality, which is reality, Jesus knows the end. In fact, Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Through Jesus' knowledge, death is actually just sleep. In biblical theology, death is actually just sleep. It's just a longer version of it. I mean, how our, how our minds just, just sometimes stop at the natural. We stop at what is visible and tangible, and we think that is ultimate reality. But in Jesus' world, he sees a dead person, he's like, they're sleeping. They're just asleep. And that is true whether he heals them at that moment or at the end. But every person who dies has gone to sleep. Paul uses that language in 1 Thessalonians. They're sleeping. We might miss them, and it stinks that we can't wake them up, but they are asleep. And so he goes in there, and he does the same thing. And it says in that miracle that he only took with him Peter, James, and John. So Peter got to be with him in that miracle as well. And he saw Jesus clear that room in the same way that Peter does right here with Tabitha. He puts out all the mourners and he sits quietly down beside the body and he raises her up. So she comes back to life and he presents her alive and they rejoice and many are saved. Now, there's one thing I want to stress and as a preacher it's difficult to say well i'm going to emphasize i'm going to emphasize a negative from this rather than a positive and i don't want to emphasize it but i want to point it out some i don't know what your theological background may be or who your influences are but there are some who would believe that this is normative for the church Basically, anybody who has the Spirit of God within them has the authority to pronounce healing over others. Some, some of you, or not some of you, but I mean, some people would take that to the extreme and just say, we have ultimate authority and it's only your faith that would prevent you from doing it. Others would say, well, I don't necessarily know if God's always going to do it, but I'm always going to pray for people to be healed. Wherever you may be on the spectrum or people you know on that spectrum, you need to help them understand this. If this was normal for the church, then the church here at Joppa would not have sent two men to Peter. They sent two men with urgency to Peter. Peter, you need to come because our beloved sister has died. Now, I would say they were very fortunate that they had an apostle nearby. The church recognized the unique authority of the, of the apostles at the time. In Acts chapter 2, we realized that signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles. It wasn't just gifts displayed indiscriminately throughout the church. I mean, it, there's not just, if you have Christ, you can heal. It doesn't work that way. And Christ never meant it to work that way, especially because if we had the power to overcome sin by our word, whether it's in the power of Christ or not, then the doctrine of the defeat of sin would not make sense. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that every enemy is being subjected to Jesus. He is ruling and subjecting everything under his feet. But what is the last enemy to be defeated? Death. In other words, death is going to be a reality until Jesus returns. We were not given the ability or the power or the privilege to overcome death by our own will until Jesus comes back. He is going to wake up all of the sleeping. In fact, we realize when Jesus comes back, Paul says, the dead in Christ, they will arise first. It's Jesus who raises the dead. And he gave this authority to the apostles, specifically in the first century, to validate their, 
their witness and their authority. And the early church understood this. They sent for Peter. They didn't just say, well, we can just do this right here. We have the spirit of God. This is a vibrant Christian community and they recognize that this is not normative experience. I praise God that he used this to witness to that town. And if God so chooses to do that, I praise him for that as well. But I certainly don't expect at this time in the church that this is how God normally operates. And the, the early church understood that. And I wanted to point that out to you as well. But we realize that this is also a witness of the inbreaking of the kingdom. All of Jesus' miracles he described as the kingdom coming. The kingdom is about you. It is around you. It is upon you. Everything Jesus did was a manifestation of his kingdom. And so when the dead are raised, it's demonstrating that in my kingdom, there will be no death. When food is multiplied, he is demonstrating in my kingdom, there will be no hunger. When the sick and lonely are comforted and brought in, he says, in my kingdom, there will be perfect harmony between humanity. Everything Jesus did from his words to his actions was an inbreaking. It was glimmers of light sneaking through the curse of sin to demonstrate the onset of his kingdom. That's called the inauguration of his kingdom. That his kingdom began at his ministry. But it is not yet consummated. Consummated means the final commitment and closure of those things, the final and full realization, which is why healing and raising from the dead is not a normal experience for Christians yet. Because the kingdom has not been consummated. And so we live in that place right now. That's, that's where we are in terms of the scope of God's redemption. We are in that place where we have seen the inbreaking of the kingdom, but it is not yet fully here, which is why we still carry around our weak and failing and troubled bodies, are sometimes struggling with sin, Oh, we're just not there yet. We're not freed from the bonds fully of sin yet. We're freed from its penalty, but the effects are still with us. Um, but there's one other thing that this speaks of, and that is, it proved the resurrection of Jesus. Now, how does it prove the resurrection of Jesus? Well, when Jesus died, there was a rumor that went around that was intentionally spread, that the disciples actually stole the body to make it look like he came back to life. And that rumor spread around, and it, and, it, and it had some staying power. But here's the deal. If Christ is still dead, then how is he able to heal from beyond the grave? So when, when, when Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you, that's a present tense, that's a present tense uh, indicative statement. Jesus is healing you right now, right? It's like your phone rings and it's like, you know, it says, you know, Dave or whoever calling. I'm assuming he is alive at that time. But even more so, if, if Christ has not been raised, he has no ability to do anything. He's just a man. But to the early church, it, they had to recognize that Christ, although we have not seen him raised, his work is still going on, which means he's alive. Just because he's in heaven doesn't mean he's not actively working through his Holy Spirit, through his church, through the witness of the apostles and the gospel. He's doing it all from where? From his throne in heaven, where he reigns even today. Christ reigns now. He has authority over death now. He has authority over all things now but the redemptive plan has not come to full fruition yet. Why? Because there are many who are not yet saved, so he has chosen not to come back yet. It's a mercy to those who do not know him that he has not returned yet. And so these signs, signs of the truth, these are pointing to Jesus' current reign from the throne. It points to that this is ultimate reality, that this is the ultimate answer to life, that it is in Christ. And again, through each one of these individuals who were healed, full towns got saved. And, and that's because it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you don't have a miraculous experience. You need to have a vision of who Christ is. And if Christ has all power to heal, then he has power to forgive you. And you need not wait to be healed to be forgiven. Some people ask for signs. Well, if Jesus does this or that, then I will... Um, 
you know, then I'll repent, then I'll come to Christ. But we even see he heals 10 lepers and they're all so happy they get healed and they all go off and one leper comes back to say thank you. And Jesus says, I thought I healed 10 of you. A miraculous encounter does not ensure the faith of somebody. It's the witness of Christ and his power to forgive and the recognition that you are desperate for forgiveness that leads us to Christ. It demonstrates that Jesus has authority to heal and to forgive and to bring every government and person under his lordship. Isaiah chapter 8, 9. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And so we close with this doxology. How should we live in worship? What is this? How do we, how do we respond to this? Well, that Christ is living and he is Lord of all. And Peter's witness of this was just, he was a conduit. He was a vessel for the authority of Christ. Peter didn't build the church. Jesus is building the church through his people because he's alive. And so he's Lord of all. And that means that he is Lord over the things which do not appear to be in conformity to his plan. Paul would later recognize that he had a, he, he had a handicap of his own. We're not sure what it is, but we think it was vision related. Paul prayed three times that his vision would be restored. But he recognized... And God, what, what did God say to Paul when he prayed that? My power is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness, my power is displayed. So he is Lord over circumstances that appear to be tragic or appear to be difficult or appear to be too much for us or appear to be outside of his will. He is Lord over them to demonstrate his glory. Because what do we want? What do we want people thinking that we're smart, we're theological, we have it together? Or do we want people to look at our church and look at us and say, God must be among them? Because those people are way too weak and foolish to do anything that's happening over there. My power is displayed in your weakness. So my friends, every circumstance that we face is ordained by God for the glory of God. I wonder if you recognize that when you became a Christian, it would swallow up every detail of your life. That every part of your heart, soul, mind, and strength would, be, would now be under the supervision and sovereignty of God for his glory. That's what, that which is difficult and that which is praiseworthy and wonderful. All of it belongs to the reign of Christ. So we need to recognize that the gospel has not failed when sickness or death have not been loosed yet because we recognize that that's only a matter of timing. That's a matter of what time it is on your watch. Because when Christ comes back, he will put an end to every ounce of suffering that has ever existed. And he will judge every sin that has not been laid on Christ. God is a perfect judge and he's a perfect healer. And so when we, dis- when we discuss the results of the gospel, which is full restoration of all things, we can't get cranky because we don't see them yet. It's a matter of timing. Paul, um, John says in his uh, first letter, when we see him, we will be like him. In other words, when Christ appears in the twinkling of an eye, we will be immediately and fully transformed. We are getting there now, but there will be an instantaneous and, and momentary and full transformation when he appears. And then he will judge the living and the dead and he will recreate the whole earth and he will do away with rebellion and sin Friends, that's the hope of the gospel, but it's a matter of timing. So what do we do? We live faithfully now wherever we are. In whatever difficult or easy circumstance we are in, we recognize that it's ordained for the advance of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. If he heals you, it is for the witness of of his name. If he allows you to continue in sickness, it is for the glory of his name. Both serve him. Both of those circumstances serve him. He is watching over his word to perform it. And so I pray that we would be excited and released in this knowledge that there are no accidents and that we are not, we're not poor followers, we're not poor understanders. If we're not seeing what's happening in Acts, Acts is the foundation of the church. We minister upon the foundation and because we don't see all the same things happening, the gospel has not failed and we have not failed. This is how the church was established and we go forward in confidence that the truth and reign of Christ is for real. 
But here's the deal. We, we can't work for Christ. We cannot live for him. We cannot love him without having a deep personal gratitude for salvation. The Christian agenda is not something to be signed up for if you're a conservative. It's not something to just get excited about if, if, you're, if you love art or education. It's the mission of the redeemed, of God. Those who have been washed of their sins and welcomed into the family of God, equipped and built up and edified and then released into the world that needs him. And this is what the apostles were doing and it's church planting, which is what we're doing here in Smith Falls. And I just love that's that final verse that who did Peter stay with? He stayed with a tanner. Even these little details are evidence of the gospel of God. I met a guy named Gary last night who was asking for some change in front of shoppers and uh, I bought him a sub. And um, I didn't have time to eat it with him. I was there for dinner and I couldn't find Shannon because she was still at Sonia's and I was hungry. So I went and got a sub and I said, I got to go back and be there when my kids and wife get back. And he said, okay, no problem. But he told me where he usually hangs out. And that doesn't mean I'm somehow nicer than somebody else. But I look at the world as a Christian, understanding that there are people and circumstances that are for his glory. And and when I get coffee with Gary, I'm going to tell him the gospel of Christ. And even these small social things that are included in scripture about who Peter stayed with are an indication of his missionary mindset for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And we all have that privilege. We all have that opportunity. We all have that power. Don't feel guilty if you haven't done something for Christ. That's not at all what this is about. That's not all what this is about. You need to get up and do for Jesus. No, 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 no. It's to recognize that in the simplicity and difficulty and challenges of life, he is at work and he is sovereign over those circumstances. And so, yeah, we just pray that we would help point people to the Christ who will come back and restore all things 